Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you on a weekly journey through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so grab them and start a little group. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Numbers, an important historical book in the Old Testament that has great relevance to the Christian life. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're in Numbers 25. The last few weeks we've been in Numbers 20 through 21, which covers Moses striking the rock that yields water, but this keeps him out of the promised land because of his disobedience. Then after that, we have a number of military encounters that finish up those chapters. Last week, we talked about Numbers 22 through 24. They encounter the Moabites, who have a spiritual rather than a strictly military strategy. Balak hires Balaam to bless the people of Moab and to curse the people of Israel. Doesn't work out very well as we covered last week, but the Israelites start to hang around with the Moabites and the compromise that follows brings big trouble. And that takes us to this week's story. We'll start in chapter 25 verses 1 through 3. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So verse 1 jumps right into the trouble. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. This is ironic given Ruth, who's a Moabitess of great renown, that shows up later in the Bible. Verse 2, they invited them to to the sacrifices to their gods, which of course is a big no-no reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 10 in New Testament times. Verses 2 and 3, the people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping. The New American Standard renders it yoked itself to the Baal of Peor. A few observations here. First, that false religion is a cover for additional sin. Second, that the meals are connected to community, intimacy, and religion, whether false or true, meals are often a way to achieve these things. We also see sin deepening here. It starts with sexual desires, but leads to deeper trouble with idolatry later. James 1, 13 through 15 comes to mind here. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Notice also how sin widens. Verse 1 refers to the men, verse 2 to the people, and verse 3 to all Israel. Here we see why sin is often likened to yeast as it spreads throughout a community. And we also see here the impact of men as household leaders and how devastating their sin can be, not just to themselves, but also to the community. We also see physical and spiritual adultery here. The New Revised Standard renders this play the harlot, which is an appropriate double entendre. They're engaged in physical adultery, but also unfaithful in their marriage-like relationship to God. And 
Anytime we see this in the scriptures, the references to idolatry and adultery usually go hand in hand. When we embrace novel gods, when we engage in polytheism or syncretism or anything that puts gods in line with the true God, we're doing what is being talked about in these verses. Now, again, this seems crazy that Israel's acting like this, but of course we do the same sort of thing. And I think the other interesting application here is that they've had contact with the world now after a very long isolation. And so a lot of times we get ourselves in trouble. I think about parenting that shelters kids too much. We keep them from things. They live in isolation, but when they're exposed to the world, what are they going to do? Are they ready to handle the world and their encounters with it? Effective Christian parenting is not merely isolating kids, getting them to conform to basic standards of behavior, forcing them to go to church. We're looking for them to be disciples of Jesus in the long term. Last point here is that Israel is just across the Jordan from Jericho at this point. And this is particularly troubling because they have the goal in mind. This represents God's promises and their agenda, and it's in view, and yet still they engage in this sin. As a result of this, verse 3, the Lord's anger burned against them due to the sexual immorality and the idolatry. It's probably also quite irritating that this is the new generation, and they've taken a quick turn away from the Lord. I like what Gordon Winham says here. The Bible startles its readers by the way it juxtaposes the brightest of revelations and the darkest of sins. The golden calf, the disobedience of Aaron's sons in Leviticus 8 through 10, David with Bathsheba, Palm Sunday with Good Friday. The wonderful prophecies of Balaam are succeeded by the great apostasy at Peor. In this way, Scripture tries to bring home to us the full wonder of God's grace in face of man's incorrigible propensity to sin. Now, the catalyst for all this turns out to be Balaam. We read this in chapter 31, verse 16. There's also a reference to this in Revelation 2.14. And Balaam gets points for being clever, but then again, this is a famous strategy to appeal to men in terms of both idolatry and sexuality. Ironically, it's a much more effective strategy than what he had tried to do before with Balak. Matthew Henry says, Israel, having escaped the curse of Balaam, here sustains a great deal of damage by the counsel of Balaam. Remember that the devil is portrayed as both a serpent and a lion and a dragon. So we think about the power of the devil through the lion and the dragon, but the wiles and the cunning of the devil and his strategies through the serpent. It's also ironic that the people curse themselves rather than Balaam trying to get God to curse them, which was never going to work. And the other irony here is that beautiful women were more dangerous to the Israelites than armed men. The subtle attacks are often more dangerous to us than the more overt attacks of the devil in the world. Gregory of Nyssa says those who were stronger than men were conquered by women. As soon as the women appeared to them, showing off attractiveness instead of weapons, they forgot their manly strength and dissipated their vigor in pleasure. Or more broadly, Matthew Henry says, we are more endangered by the charms of a smiling world than by the terrors of a frowning world. Okay, verses 4 and 5, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. So verse 4 opens with the command of Moses to take all the leaders and kill them. The follow-through by Moses in verse 5 is to Israel's judges. So it's interesting about the delegation of authority and power from Moses down through the ranks. 
to put to death those of your men who are worshiping Baal. Some interesting phrases here. Verse 4 says, expose them in broad daylight. And this is indicative of a principle we see throughout Scripture, that a public rebuke is necessary for public sin. Private rebuke for public sin is insufficient. Public rebuke for private sin is inappropriate. And we also see here leaders being held to a higher standard, as in James 3.1, that teachers are held to a stricter standard and under a stricter judgment. Finally, it's interesting to compare verses 4 and 5, the command of Moses in verse 4, and then what he does with it in verse 5. And a lot of it hinges on the word leaders in verse 4, who is meant by that. If it's the tribal leaders, then Moses is transforming that to those who had sinned. But if it's the leaders of this particular rebellion, then he's casting a wider net than God has laid out, not just the leaders, but anyone who engaged in the sin at all. Either way, it's interesting that God does not critique the decision that Moses makes here in verse 5. Okay, verses 6 through 9, Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. So in verse 6, an Israelite man, identified in verse 14 as Zimri, a Simeonite, brought a Midianite woman, identified in verse 15 as Kozbi, daughter of a Midianite tribal chief. A small detail, but notice that it's a Midianite when we started the passage with a Moabite. And as we talked about last week, there's a Midian-Moab alliance. We see these terms being used interchangeably. And what do these two do? Right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly, while they were weeping about their sin, they engage in this conduct. This is really galling behavior. In my notes, I've got that this is akin to squealing tires in front of the police or a funeral procession. The ignorance and arrogance of this sin, there's just no fear of man or God in these actions. What happens? Verse 7, Phineas, who's Aaron's grandson and the son of the new high priest Eleazar, saw this, left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and drove the spear through both of them. This stopped the plague in verse 8, which presumably comes from God's fierce anger mentioned in verse 3, and the plague against the Israelites is stopped. So the first thought here is, wow, and the second is a question that follows pretty quickly. Are these appropriate means to appropriate ends? And one answers pretty quickly, well, yes, given the death sentence that's been laid out here in verses 4 and 5, given the crimes at hand, adultery and idolatry, and the damage of this to the tabernacle, This is both a private and a public matter. The fact that the plague ends and God commends him as the passage continues is more evidence that this is just fine, or within reason anyway. Ephesians 4.26, In your anger do not sin. Phineas is angry, but apparently not sinning here, under control and taking care of business for the tabernacle and for the nation. Again, it's a public sin. Look at passages like Galatians 2.11-14 when Paul confronts Peter. Or 1 Timothy 5.20 is another nice reference that it's a public sin. Dealing with it publicly is the appropriate way to go. This turns out to be loving God and loving others. In this, we also have a picture of dealing aggressively with gross sin in the camp among the believers. There's no compromise. There's no hesitation here. 
And maybe one can make an argument that it's overkill, so to speak, but it's not condemned at all by God, and it's probably fine, but even if not, God can work with that. This is not the apathy of Esau, who is godless because he's selling the things of God for a bowl of soup. At worst, this is someone's passion and zeal, and God can work with that. Another angle on this is if Phineas is a leader, he's not a mere follower. The most famous biblical example of this is Daniel and his three friends in Daniel chapter 1. It takes a Daniel to lead the others. Phineas is the one who steps up. There are many who are willing to follow, but there's only one leader who steps up, and it's Phineas. Think of David and Goliath. Think of Gideon with his father. Think of the watchman in Ezekiel 3 and 33. There had to be so many people who were uneasy or upset with what they saw, but they did not have enough zeal or courage to do what should have been done. For Phineas, it reads like it's a reflex for him, probably wondering why others aren't responding like he is. And we need a lot more people like that. How do we cultivate this and pass it on to our kids? We're trying to raise Phineas's here. We're not trying to just raise kids who don't get involved with Midianite women. That's a low bar for a Christian worldview. Yeah, stay out of trouble. That's great. But be a Phineas. Make a difference in this world for God's kingdom. One last set of remarks about the big picture among Jacob's sons. First of all, it seems that the tribe of Simeon was most heavily involved. The most blatant sinner was a Simeonite. We see that in verse 6. And their numbers are greatly reduced in the second census that we'll see later in the book of Numbers. They shrink from 59,300 to 22,200. The second thing that's fascinating here is it's Simeon and Levi who are behind the trouble in Genesis 34 with the Shechemites when their sister is raped. That's an R-rated story that I've covered earlier, but it doesn't get much play because of the nature of the material in that chapter, so we ignore it, but then we miss some really cool details. So Simeon and Levi get themselves in trouble in 34. In Exodus 32, it's the Levites who step up in the golden calf incident, and guess who steps up again here in Numbers 25? Again, it's a Levite. In the meantime, Simeon and his descendants have been not so impressive, including starting the trouble here. And so Simeon continues to devolve into meaninglessness. They're eventually absorbed into the tribe of Judah in Joshua 19.9. But Levi has been redeemed. The actions of the Levites in Exodus 32 and here Phinehas allow the Levites to be used by God in service of the tabernacle. So that takes us to verses 10 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Verse 11 is amazing. He has turned my anger away so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Remember, God had called them to use the sword on the sinners in chapter 25 earlier. But here, Phineas and what he has done is sufficient to make atonement. Wenham says, Phineas executed the sinner, expressing so clearly and visibly God's own anger through his deed that anger was turned away. In fact, the word for atonement here is kippur, which is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. The other phrase in verse 11, for he was as zealous or jealous as I am for my honor. You know, zealous means initiative and follow through. And notice that Phineas is zealous against sin, 
and for God's honor. Verses 12 and 13, therefore I'm making my covenant of peace with him and his descendants, and he gets a lasting priesthood. Psalm 106, 28 through 31, they yoke themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They aroused the Lord's anger by their wicked deeds and a plague broke out among them. But Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was checked. This was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. The priesthood had been promised to Aaron and his sons. This continues and redirects that specifically to Phineas's descendants. It's also interesting that reward comes with the violence. Again, the key here is atonement, which also involved violence through sacrifice. But it also is a picture for us of the importance of obedience, zeal, and truly loving one's neighbor and the church. I think we see in this passage also that Phineas is fully commended. This is not a, well, he went a little overboard, but... This is God totally on board with what Phineas has done in this amazing moment. And of course, all this can be taken to foreshadow the lasting and amazing priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of this, 24,000 people are still dead back in verse 9. But at the end of it, we have the perfect justice of God in the form of Phineas. Deuteronomy 4, verses 3 and 4, You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor, but all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. Okay, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered most of Numbers 25, when the people of Israel engage in sexual immorality and idolatry with the people of Moab and Midian. This is the post Balaam Balak story that from Numbers 22 through 24, Balaam has used another strategy, and this one's been much more effective. The best thing about Numbers 25 is the zeal of Phineas in turning away the wrath of God and bringing human judgment instead of divine judgment, or rather, divine judgment through human judgment. Now, the end of chapter 25 lays out God's condemnation of the Midianites, verse 17, treat them as enemies and kill them. And then verse 18 begins with a rationale for this, because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you. Of course, the alert reader will think back to Genesis 3 when Satan had deceived Adam and Eve. And the same thing is a picture, at least for us as well. There can be no compromise with deception, with our enemies, with sin, with the devil. It's interesting that God had had no trouble with the Midianites before this. In fact, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had been deeply instrumental. And Midian seems to be a term for a loose confederation of tribes. But here, uh, they're going to be trouble for Israel, and Israel, through God, is going to be trouble for them. The most famous example of this is in the time of Gideon in Judges 6-8. through 8. So we're going to skip ahead to Numbers 31 and skim this chapter It is the imminent application of this call by God to Israel to engage in holy war against the Midianites. In between, there's a number of chapters we'll cover in later segments, another census, a number of Levitical laws, feasts, and offerings, but we'll cover that later. So skip ahead with me to Numbers 31. Verses 1 through 6 reiterates the call to holy war. Some interesting phrases here. Verse 2, after that you will be gathered to your people. That looks back to Numbers 20 and Moses' sin there. Of course, uh, the end of the book of Numbers and into Deuteronomy will cover that theme about the end of Moses' life. 
The purpose of this is given in verse 3 to go to war against the Midianites and to carry out the Lord's vengeance against them. It's also interesting that verse 2 is about vengeance for Israel. Verse 3 is for vengeance for God. And so there's a unity in purpose and will here between what's good for Israel and what God desires. Matthew Henry also observes, though judgment begins with the house of God, it shall not end there. Israel had been judged, now it's Midian's turn. Verses 3 through 6, Moses gives instructions to the people. It's interesting that they had been commissioned by God, but the details are left to Moses. Verse 3, arm some of your men. Verse 4, a thousand men from each tribe. So that's 12,000 men total. If you're a fan of Revelation in chapter 7, there are 12,000 from each tribe. The burden is shared equally here despite different populations, and it is a relatively small number. We don't know how many people they were fighting, but it doesn't appear to be a particularly large battle. And in verse 6, the army is to be accompanied by Phineas, the hero from chapter 25. He had led the internal war. Now he would lead the external war. The NIV Study Bible says he leads in the sacred aspects of the battle to demonstrate that this is a holy war. And notice also that we don't see anything about Joshua in this passage. The other reference here is to the articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling will go in front. Again, this is indicative of God is in front, God is in charge. Verses 7 through 12 is the battle itself. There's no compromise here. Verse 7, they killed every man, including in verse 8, the five kings of Midian and Balaam as well. His presence here shows a lack of belief and obedience. The reference to the sword by which he died lines up with chapter 22, verse 31. And the people also burned all their towns and camps, but they did not devote all. Verse 9, they captured the Midianite women and children. Verse 9, they also took all the Midianite herds, flocks, goods as plunder. And verse 12, they brought all this back to Moses and the assembly. So no compromise with the men, but compromise with the women and the stuff. So we read about Moses' response to this in verses 13 through 18. Verse 14, he's angry with the officers. This presumes they should have known better, in particular in verse 15, because they allowed the women to live, and in verse 17, because they allowed the boys to live. What's the problem with the women? Verse 16, they followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord. Going forward, it would not be wise to invite even more temptation. Again, there can be no compromise with sin. Moses' new prescriptions in verse 17, kill every woman who has slept with a man. Verse 18, save for yourselves the virgins. So here we have the penalty for sexual immorality, consistent with Leviticus 20.10, and the idolatry which accompanied sexual activity. As Wynnum puts it, therefore only the sexually inexperienced, who must be innocent of involvement in the sin of Baal Peor, are allowed to survive. As for the boys, the prescription is clear, now kill all of them. Again, this is harsh, but they were a potential threat to land inheritance, safety, and religious and leadership purity. So what is the relevance of Phineas's method in Israel's holy wars to today? And the quick answer is it's a special case. This was commanded by God for a special case, the promised land. This is a holy war in the strict sense of the word. Only God can command that. It's also in the face of unmitigated evil. Genesis 15, 16 talks about their sin had reached full measure. And there are obviously severe problems here with idolatry, sex, and marriage. Wenham observes that Midianite seduction of Israel was from their true husband, the Lord, and adultery carried the death penalty in the ancient world, not just in Israel. We should also remember that Israel was several times threatened with extinction by God and by these other people that are threatening them. 
And finally, for the New Testament believer, all would perish for their sins, but for the grace of God. Israel was punished first, but then it was the turn of the surrounding people. We see this principle in Romans 2.9 and 1 Peter 4.17 and 18. I'll leave the rest of the passage to your reading. Verses 25 through 47 is on the fruits of the victory to God, the leaders, and the people. And then 48 through 54 is a report on the battle from the officers to Moses, as well as mentioning atonement and making a memorial for the Israelites. Let's close this out with one really cool connection. If you turn to Isaiah 9, classic passage on the coming of the Messiah. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Verses 6 and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But then look back to verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. A reference to the time of Gideon, but also to this passage in Numbers 25 and 31. Thanks be to God for Phineas's zeal and the grace of God. May we embrace God's grace and live out Phineas's zeal. Time to take a break. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous two segments, we covered Numbers 25 and 31, and that's the episode with the Midianites and the Moabites, the sexual immorality, Phineas's zeal, judgment of God on the Midianites and the call to holy war. We skipped a bunch of chapters in the middle of that, so we're going to go back to those now, starting with Numbers 26. This is the beginning of the last one-third of Numbers, and it underlines the final preparations for Canaan, which will help us understand the strange mix of topics the rest of the way. Chapter 26 is the second census, but it's of a new generation 38 years later. We're only going to read verses 1 through 4 of this chapter. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, Take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, all those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. So on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, Moses and Eleazar the priests spoke with them and said, Take a census of the men 20 years old or more, as the Lord commanded Moses. So this is a follow-up to Numbers 1 through 4, the first census. Again, both of these were preparation for military campaigns to follow, now particularly as they actually are going to go into the Promised Land in the Canaan. Verses 2 and 4 list males 20 years and older, same thing that had occurred with the first census at Mount Sinai in their first year in the wilderness. But beyond the military, this allows us to look back and to look forward for the people as a whole. This is out with the old generation and in with the new. It looks backward to the events which have moved the numbers and forward to the proportionate shares of territory that they will receive in the promised land. It looks back to the patriarchal promises and looks forward to their fulfillment. Verse 1 also notes that this is after the plague, which is interesting timing and placement for a census. It follows Balaam's attempted curse and the post-Balaam plague, which are the last deaths in the book of Numbers. Verse 1 also says, The Lord said, and that reiterates that censuses are only to be taken by God's command. The most prominent counterexample of this is David in 2 Samuel 24. And then finally in verse 1, Eleazar replaces Aaron, and this further confirms his succession. Remember, Aaron has died. Eleazar is the new high priest. 
Now, the rest of the chapter has a lot of detail that we're not going to cover, but verses 5 through 50 is a list of each son or tribe of Jacob. Verse 5 mentions the word Israel, and those are synonymous, with their grandsons and clans and tribal total numbers. All of Jacob's sons are listed except Ephraim and Manasseh make an appearance instead of Joseph, and Levi is treated separately in verses 57 through 62. Levi is scattered because of Genesis 34. They are redeemed because of Exodus 32 and Numbers 25, and they have the special privilege of serving the tabernacle, but they don't have any land of their own. Joseph receives a double blessing, and so we don't see a tribe of Joseph anymore, but we see his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, each tribe has one to eight sons or clans, but it's not related to the tribe's population. That's sort of interesting. Matthew Henry says, Providence in the building up of families and nations does not tie itself to probabilities. In terms of total numbers, it's interesting that the three tribes under Judah's standard, or banner, and remember Judah is where Christ comes from, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, all three of these grew at least by a bit. And the other big thing to notice here is that Simeon's number has been greatly reduced. In chapter 1, verse 13, it was 59,300. Here in chapter 26, verse 14, it's down to 22,200. The main reason for this, presumably, is the plague that the Simeonites led in chapter 25 with their immorality. Verse 51 gives the total a slight drop. There are 1,820 fewer males than in chapter 1. Given the plagues that struck them in chapter 16 and chapter 25, when about 38,000 died, their population should have increased modestly, about 6%, even in the wilderness, but the plagues ended up reducing the population. Verses 52 to 56 gives instructions on land distribution. 57 through 62 talks about the Levites. 63 through 65 is a wrap-up, including the important mention that Joshua and Caleb are the only ones to make it from the last generation. G. Campbell Morgan refers to these two men as an elect remnant, a living link with the great deliverance wrought by the Exodus. At this point, Caleb is 79 years old. Joshua is in his 90s. Everyone else would be under the age of 60 because they needed to be under 20 when the judgment was rendered after the rebellion in the wilderness in Numbers 13 and 14. Again, all this is a picture of God's righteousness, justice, and mercy. He discriminately punished and delivered while Israel continues on. Again, only Joshua and Caleb get to continue and enter into the promised rest. For New Testament believers, great passage on entering the promised land and the rest are, is in Hebrews 4. Last thing to note and maybe underline in your Bible is that chapter 26 has a mention of a number of important stories. Verses 9 through 11 has Korah's rebellion. Verse 19 has Ur and Onan, which is the story from Genesis 38. Verse 61 has Nadab and Abihu, that's the priests who offer unauthorized fire in Leviticus 10. There are some positive stories as well. Verse 20 references Perez, which is in the interesting lineage of Jesus Christ. And then verse 33 has a passing mentions of the daughters of Zelophehad, a story that we'll talk about later in Numbers 27 and 36. Wenham observes that we have the repeated promises to the patriarchs coming to be fulfilled here, but working against the fulfillment of these promises was the faithless disobedience of various members of the family. And then he lists the stories that I've mentioned already. He concludes, yet despite these great setbacks, the population, after the years of wandering, is almost the same. Again, we see God's mercy in the midst of judgment.
Okay, we're going to skip Numbers 27 for now. That takes us to Numbers 28 and 29, which are on the offerings, which are a repeat of a lot of things we've already covered in Leviticus. So I'm not going to cover it here. I do want to talk about why it's repeated here, because I think that's important if you're trying to understand what's happening in the book of Numbers and if you're deciding to read it on your own. One answer to this question is in Acts 7.42, which quotes Amos 5.25, But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? So this verse may imply their omission during the wilderness wanderings, or at least the limited ability to offer the sacrifices in the wilderness period. In any case, it's useful to reiterate them now on the doorstep of their entry into the promised land. The second reason is that it is oddly a preparation for war in Canaan. Matthew Henry observes here, they might be tempted to think that while they were engaged in war, they should be excused from offering sacrifices. And the passage here is reiterating that's not the case at all. The sacrifices should be renewed, initiated, continued, even as they engage in holy war in the promised land. Wenham makes a couple of nice points here. He notes that there were reiterations of cereal offerings and wine offerings in chapter 15 immediately after the spy episode. And so we see the same pattern in the scriptures here that immediately after their apostasy and sin, God reiterates the offerings again. And that may be to make the point that I'm still interested in your offerings. I still love you. I still want relationship with you. Even after the sin, God reiterates that relationship is available with the people of Israel. And then related to that, Wenham also notes that sacrifice is at the heart of biblical worship, and so many chapters of the Pentateuch are devoted to this. And so this underlines this again, that in a general sense, worship is at the heart of our approach to God. And so it's being reiterated here to the people of Israel in this general sense. Now, there are some differences between what we see here and what we see in Leviticus the concern of the chapters is quite different. In terms of the numbers, the focus here is on what would be offered every day of the year by the priest for the nation as a whole. And then there's the emphasis on who is involved in the offerings. If you remember in Leviticus, the emphasis was on the lay responsibilities. Here in Numbers, it's on the priestly sacrificial duties. As for the details, the numbers here are impressive. Every year in future, the priests will have to sacrifice 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs, and offer more than a ton of flour and a 1,000 bottles of oil and wine. Those calculations come from Winham, by the way. One last comment from Winham I think that's pretty cool. He says, clearly, Israel is destined to be a prosperous agricultural community. These laws about sacrifices then contribute to the note of triumph that grows ever louder as the border of Canaan is reached. It's going to be a promised land, indeed. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Right now we're in Numbers 30. We've been jumping around a little bit. A few segments ago, we covered Numbers 25 and 31, which go together historically. And then in the last segment, we did Chapters 26, 28, and 29, saving 27 for later. So now we have 30 and 32 in this segment. Chapter 30 is about vows. This is a topic we've seen before in the book of Numbers earlier. We had the Nazarite vows in Chapter 6. And it was also covered 
in Leviticus 27, what are called vows of redemption. Here it's mostly if a husband or father has a problem with the vow of a wife or a daughter. The structure of the chapter is two groups of three circumstances, and that's a common structure in the Pentateuch, so we see it repeated here. And it's not meant to be an exhaustive list. There's nothing here about sons or unmarried older women. This is typical of ancient Oriental law, according to Wynnum. And he says these are not meant to be comprehensive, but rather they're collections of interesting and important cases. Now, why is it here in the narrative? That's an interesting question. Wynnum offers some solutions to this here, that usually vows were sealed with a sacrifice, and we just talked about sacrifices and how important those are. Vows are also frequent during wartime, and Israel was about to engage in a long campaign of conquest. In fact, the wives of the Transjordan warriors would be left on their own. So this raises exactly the questions that will be dealt with here. What happens if the wife takes a vow in the husband's absence? In chapter 21, verse 2, the Israelites had taken a vow to annihilate the Canaanites. And in chapter 32, the next story we're going to cover, the Transjordan tribes take a vow. And that's worth some consideration here of the seriousness of the vows about to be taken. So it makes a lot of sense to have this chapter here. We're only going to read verses 1 and 2 out of this chapter. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, This is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. So the passage starts with male vows and oaths before moving to the main part of the chapter, which is dealing with wives and daughters. Verse 1 talks about a vow to the Lord and an oath to obligate himself to a pledge. There's different Hebrew words being used here. It's not a complete explanation, but there seems to be a distinction here between whether they're connected to offerings or not, or whether they're matters of commission or omission. And these are vows to the Lord in the first case, and the second is primarily an oath that would be uh, for dealing with other people. The command here is he must not break his word. He must do everything he said. One thinks about the seriousness of th such things in the early church in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. One of my favorite examples here is in Daniel 6.4. The bureaucrats are trying to find dirt on Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they can't do it. At the end of the verse, it says they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Corrupt is doing things you shouldn't do. Negligence is failing to do things that you should be doing. In other words, sins of omission and commission, and they can't find anything on Daniel. And of course, that goes for oaths as well, that when we speak, it should happen. And that's the way it works with God. Think of how God creates. He speaks and it just happens. Hypocrisy is the gap between what we say and what we do. It's a big deal in divine relationships. To say you're going to do something to God and not do it would be to treat God very lightly. And it's also a very big deal in human relationships, especially in that time. There would be no or few written contracts. One's word was supposed to be equivalent to a contract. And of course, we can draw application to our own day with, with respect to trust and degrees of commitment and relationships and the like. From there, verses 3 through 5 get into the guts of the matter. What happens if a daughter takes a vow that is not consistent with what the father would want? Verses 10 through 15, what if the wife takes a vow that is not consistent with what the husband would want? And the punchline here is that the vows would hold if implicitly or explicitly agreed to by the father or husband, but the vows would be nullified if he forbids. 
the language here is the Lord will release her. Again, males have no release as per verses 1 and 2. And then widows are mentioned in verse 9. They are also responsible for themselves. Now, the father-daughter relationship probably extends to sons, but it's not made clear here. If so, it would be pointing to the responsibility of parents and wrestling with them allowing versus preventing their kids from making mistakes. One can imagine some interesting choices here. Johnny, you've made a vow, you've got to stick to it, or we shouldn't let you take that vow in the first place. In the husband-wife relationship, this points to unity in the family with the husband being held responsible. Remember that God comes to Adam when there's trouble in Genesis 3. As C.S. Lewis puts it, there's no democracy in marriage, can't have two authorities, and so there's both more freedom and more responsibility for the husband as per Ephesians 5 and other passages. To me, the most powerful point here is that both of these imply that implicit acceptance is acceptance, that silence equals consent. And verse 15 specifies if he nullifies too late, then he is responsible for her guilt. Finally, verses 6 through 8 is the transitional special case here. What if you marry after the vow? Then the husband can still nullify that. Now, vows are a big deal in the Old Testament and more of a mixed bag in the New Testament, but they're still in play even in the early church. Proverbs 20, verse 25, it is a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vows. And one thinks of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. So even though we find Paul taking oaths in the New Testament, Jesus gives us words of warning in the Sermon on the Mount. We've already covered chapter 31, so that takes us to chapter 32, and I'm going to start off with verses 1, 2, and 5. The Reubenites and Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, so that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the community and said, If we have found favor in your eyes, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. So the request makes sense. They've got very large herds and flocks. They see that the land is suitable. They approach the community leaders and make the request. Verse 3 and 4 that we skipped detail the Transjordan lands. We learn in verse 33 that the land comes from the kingdoms of Sion and Og, who they had conquered back in chapter 21. Verse 5's style considerations are worth noting. Is it respect or flattery when they say things like, if we have found favor in your eyes, your servants? Now, what are their motives here? Could be fear of war in Canaan, which is not even mentioned here. Could be that they want to take the easy way out. The phrase, at least in the NIV, don't make us, sounds like they don't want to fight. Could be greed for good land, but a lack of faith about the best land. This is reasonable and it looked good, but it's not the promised land. Perhaps they're failing to imagine the greater abundance in Canaan. And I think for us, there's a great application here that we often settle for the good rather than going for the best that God has in store for us. Could be that they just want to take control of things and avoid the lots, avoid God's sovereignty in choosing what the land will be that they will get. This is a way to control the process rather than to depend on God. But I think maybe just the practicality of it is sufficient. There's a lot of good land here. Uh, for their occupation, it would be difficult to move all of these animals. And so I think we can draw, you know, reasonable inferences. This is a decent choice, at least. Now, there are some troubling considerations. Verse 1 emphasizes the verb saw. And so it sure seems like a lust of the eye along the lines of 1 John 2.16. It certainly looks like they're preferring material prosperity to the will of God. 
It seems to show indifference to that plan that God has already laid out. And worse yet, it smells like Numbers 13 and 14, the spy story, where people are afraid to go into the land that God has promised. So what's going to happen next? So I'll read Moses' reply in verses 6 through 8 and then 14 and 15. Moses said to the Gadites and Reubenites, Should your own people go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from crossing over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. And then down to verses 14 and 15. Here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will again leave all this people in the wilderness and you will be the cause of their destruction. One little thing before we get to the guts of the argument. In verse 6, notice that the Gadites and Reubenites have been flipped back from verse 1. Commentators usually see this as a deference to Reuben's seniority in the opening of the passage, but then presumably that the Gadites are the ones leading the charge and the argument at this point. There's also a cross-reference to Deuteronomy 33.21 that's useful here. The guts of this, though, is Moses asking questions in verses 6 and 7. He calls them to brotherly duty and patriotism and fairness in verse 6. Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Verse 7, the impact of the request, if Moses allowed it, would be that it would discourage the Israelites. It's a bad precedent. If all the tribes did this, eventually they would not be strong enough to conquer the land. And then later in verse 7, it's implicitly a matter of an obedience to God's call to conquer Canaan. How does this request jive with any of that? So Moses has an assessment of their motives, and it's a lack of faith. Verse 8, this is what your fathers did at Kadesh Barnea. Verse 14, here you are in the place of your fathers. In addition to this implicit rebuke, Moses also provides a detailed history in the verses we skipped, verses 9 through 13, and the results of Kadesh. Verse 14, he calls them a brood of sinners. Verse 15, he labels their choice as turning away from God. And then in 14, he argues that this would make the Lord even more angry. And verse 15, he will again leave all those people in the desert, and it would be their fault. From Moses' perspective, this is extremely frustrating. They've gotten so close to Canaan, and again, it looks like there's going to be something that messes it up. He wants to finish strong, and he wants to argue for other people, the justice and the fairness to the people of Israel. And these tribes making this request is historically inappropriate and really just bothersome that they would make this request. And Moses responds in this very strong manner. Verses 16 through 19 gives their reply. Then they came up to him and said, We would like to build pens here for our livestock and cities for our women and children, but we will arm ourselves for battle and go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our women and children will live in fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until all the Israelites have received their inheritance. We will not receive any inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan because our inheritance has come to us on the east side of the Jordan. The offers in verses 17 and 18, it smacks of bravery and servanthood. We're ready to arm ourselves and go ahead of them. They were scheduled to be the second wave in the invasion. We know this from chapter 2, verse 16, but they volunteer to go first. And they later do this in Joshua 4, verse 12, and in chapter 22. Verses 17 and 18 also speak to perseverance. We'll do this until we brought them to their place, until every Israelite has received his inheritance. And again, they are faithful to this promise as we read in Joshua 22. All of this seems quite well thought out, given the details here. It doesn't seem like they're thinking quickly on their feet, although that's certainly possible. 
If so, their motives have been unfairly challenged. We wonder if this is a gracious response or if they understand the misunderstanding given their earlier poor communication. Ironically, the same sort of thing occurs in Joshua 22, but both stories underline the importance of effective communication and the need for grace when communication is a two-way street. 16 and 17 is a practical request to build pens for the livestock and to build what must have been modest cities for the women and children. And verse 19 reiterates that the Transjordan would be their only inheritance. Verses 20 through 24, Moses accepts the conditions of their offer. Verses 25 through 27 is the promised reiterated obedience. Verses 28 through 32, Moses communicates it to Joshua. Verse 33, the half-tribe of Manasseh now joins the agreement. We're not sure if they were initially timid or later persuaded, or maybe it was just too much land for simply two tribes. As an aside, it's worth noting that the daughters of Zelophehad are from the tribe of Manasseh, and so the earlier chapter 27 foreshadows what's happening here. The chapter concludes with details of the mop-up work and the settlements. A few closing notes here. It's interesting that Moses never goes to God in prayer, but I think we can have an out here by just saying it seems obvious what should happen. So there's no need for prayer when you already know what you should do. Second, God doesn't weigh in here at all. doesn't mean that God condones it just because he allows it, but again, maybe it's fine. He had originally called them to Canaan, but he had delivered them to this land. God often extends free will to us, even when the choices are quite a bit or somewhat outside his perfect will. And finally, we note that this land was most vulnerable to attack and later did fall to enemies quicker. And so they got what they wanted, but later they didn't get what they would want. How often is that the case with our choices? God, we thank you for the freedom you give us, but most of all, we thank you for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.